0: 2 Corinthians chapter 5 and verse 9. 2 Corinthians 5 and verse 9. Wherefore we labour, that whether present or absent, we may be accepted of him. The terms present and absent mean present with the Lord, and absent from the Lord. In a certain sense, those who remain alive in their earthly bodies are absent from the Lord, whilst those who die in Christ's service are taken to be immediately present with the Lord. Whether it is God's will that we soon die in Christ's service, or remain alive for ongoing and lengthy service. Our goal and ambition remains the same. We labour, we strive, we take pains to be accepted of him. The believer always has in mind the ultimate goal of being present with the Lord present forevermore, having first been judged by him according to his works, the works of the believer. So, whether we shall soon be present with the Lord, dying in his service, or whether we shall continue to live out a full span in ongoing service here on earth, remaining absent, from his direct presence, whichever of these two it is, our primary concern is to labour and to strain every sinew that we might be pleasing to him. Because we are going to come before him to be judged. Now, Paul and his helpers have a God-given courage and confidence, knowing that, whatever the dangers they might face, this earthly life is but the preface to the real and full life which is to come, when they will be directly in the Lord's presence. They therefore press on, undaunted, knowing that the day of judgment will soon be coming. And so, we read in this verse 9, Wherefore we labour, that whether present or absent, we may be accepted of him. Um, The original Greek word behind our English word labour is an interesting one. It actually means to act from a love of honour or to work from a love of honour. And so the Christian's goal is to work so as to receive the honour of God and to be accepted by him on the great last day. Wherefore we labour. We have this desire to receive the honour of God. Wherefore we labour that whether present or absent, we may be accepted of him. And then Paul says in verse 10, for we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, that everyone may receive the things done in his body, According to that he hath done, whether it be good or bad. Now, upon faith in Christ, each one is forgiven for all his sins. He is declared righteous in God's sight. But that is just the beginning of the Christian life. Having received salvation by grace alone, apart from works and human merit, the believer is called upon to keep God's law and to be sincerely obedient in preparation for the day of judgment. Whilst no man on that day can ever merit or earn his salvation, holiness and obedience are necessary parts of our final acceptance. With God, Because they are the evidence that our faith in Christ is real. When he returns, we shall have to render an account to him for what we have done. Precisely according to what we have done. The things done in our bodies. Whether they be good or whether they be bad, we shall have to give an account. And as Christians, we shall have to give an account for what have we done with this wonderful gift of saving grace which he has given to us. What have we done with it? Now it is possible to bury one's talent of saving grace in the earth and to carry on living a life where there is very little service to Christ. Receiving forgiveness and salvation but then forgetting Christ in one's daily service. And no one can profess faith in Christ but go through life carelessly, often living in sin and then expect to be saved at the end by a dead faith which has been devoid of obedience. So we have to get this clear. Now we assert with our whole hearts that we are saved by grace alone. You cannot be saved through your works. Nevertheless, we have to do the works of obedience. And if our faith is not accompanied by the works of obedience, we shall not be accepted by him. Now this point is emphasised by James in his epistle. Uh, James chapter 2 verse 14 What doth it profit my brethren, though a man say he hath faith, and have not works? Can faith save him? You see, no professing Christian has the liberty to say God has saved me by his grace and then he goes off and lives a careless life rejecting God's commandments. James 2 verse 17 Even so faith, if it hath not works, is dead, being alone. So faith without works of obedience is a dead, useless faith. The reality of a person's faith can only be verified by what he actually does. By his actual holiness. So there is no point in someone saying, I trust Jesus to save me, and carry on leading a sinful life. In Romans 2 and verse 5, Paul says, After thy hardness and impenitent heart, thou treasurest up unto thyself wrath against the day of wrath and revelation of the righteous judgment of God, who will render to every man according to his deeds. And so there Paul is warning those who are disobedient that they are storing up wrath for themselves. And he says that on the day of judgment God will render to every man with a perfect justice according to what he has actually done. Which is what verse 10 here is saying. That everyone may receive the things done in his body according to that he hath done, whether it be good or bad. And so, what we do with our lives, what we do with Christ's gift of grace, is going to be the basis upon which we are judged. A mere profession of faith, never translated into actual obedience and actual service, will not be sufficient to save. And so in Romans 2 and verse 7, Paul says this. To them who by patient continuance in well-doing seek for glory and honour and immortality, God will render eternal life. Patient continuance in well-doing. And again, we must not let the world define well-doing for us. We're talking here about obedience to God's law. We're not talking about what society thinks is doing good we must patiently continue in keeping God's commandments. Believers in Christ have an assurance of eternal life right now. They know that God will keep them safe to the end. We are justified, declared righteous in God's sight the moment we believe. But this does not negate the responsibility to Persevere in faith and obedience throughout one's Christian life in preparation for the final day of reckoning. We must live out our Christian lives preparing for the day when we shall appear before the judgment seat of Christ. You notice Paul says in verse 9, We labour that we may be accepted of him why do we do that verse 10 for we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ and so we must realize that everything we do is going to be judged by the all-seeing god that our lord said in matthew 12 and verse 36 Every idle word that men shall speak, they shall give account thereof in the day of judgment. Now that should make us tremble. Every idle word, we shall have to give an account thereof. For by thy words thou shalt be justified, and by thy words thou shalt be condemned. Because our words reflect the state of our hearts and will also be a barometer of our works and so the Lord says that we shall have to give an account of our very words on the great last day and as we saw this morning we are told in Hebrews 12 and verse 14 that seeing the Lord and entering into his glory must first be preceded by a pursuit of absolute holiness follow peace with all men and holiness without which no man shall see the Lord so scripture plainly teaches no holiness no heaven we are being warned no holiness no heaven Verse 11, knowing therefore the terror of the Lord, we persuade men. In the light of the fearful nature of the coming day of judgment and in the light of his personal fear of God, Paul and his helpers preach with diligence and urgency. For they are accountable to the Lord for their stewardship of the gospel. Knowing therefore the terror of the Lord, we persuade men. Why are we going into High Wycombe on Thursday? Because we know the terror of the Lord. We know the reality of God's judgment. Paul is mindful that if he personally were Disobedient to his commission, that God would be very angry with him. Knowing therefore the terror of the Lord, we persuade men. Paul is mindful of the terror which is coming upon all who are without the mercy which is in Jesus Christ. Knowing the plight of the lost, And what is going to happen to them on the day of judgment? Therefore, Paul persuades men. Knowing therefore the terror of the Lord, we persuade men. Now, people will at times say to us as we preach perhaps what is seen to be a severe message in the open air. uh, They will say, oh, you're putting people off. Talk about the love of God. But what does Paul say here? Knowing therefore the terror of the Lord, we persuade men. Why do we go and preach the gospel to them? Because we realise how serious their predicament is. So the fact that God is to be feared as the judge of all is Paul's healthy motivation in persuading others to come to Christ. And every Christian should have this motivation, knowing therefore the terror of the Lord, we persuade men. Hopefully none of us can just sit idly by whilst our friend next to us is going to hell. What kind of friendship is that? To just let them go there without persuading them. And so every believer should be living life in a healthy fear of the coming day of judgment, both concerning himself and concerning others. Now, if we are trusting in Christ, this healthy fear is no contradiction to our also being peaceful, secure and joyful. Our fear of the Lord as believers is not a cringing, miserable fear, but it is honouring, reverencing, desiring to please our God. It is a fear which is totally compatible with heartfelt love for God. Psalm 2, verse 11 states Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Now, people in the world would not associate rejoicing with trembling, would they? And sadly, many professing Christians do not make this connection between rejoicing and trembling. And so whilst we rejoice in our salvation, we continue To serve the Lord with fear. This is healthy fear. This is healthy trembling. We long never to fail to honour God for who he is. Never forgetting our own unworthiness. Always preparing for the day when we shall have to appear before the judgment seat of Christ. Knowing therefore the terror of the Lord, we persuade men. Because Paul and his fellow preachers know the reality of the final condemnation of the lost, and because they personally fear God, they endeavour to persuade others of the truth of the gospel. So this is another way in which the believer must prepare for the coming day of reckoning by witnessing to others with urgency about the need of salvation. We have to persuade men. This is part of our Christian service. Now Paul's special calling was to preach the gospel as his primary occupation. Uh, Not every Christian, of course, has that calling. But every Christian is under an obligation to be a shining light to his neighbour and to give testimony to his faith in Christ. No no one can opt out of this. No no one can say, well, that's the minister's job. Every believer has to testify to his Saviour. In Psalm 51 and verse 12, David cries out to the Lord, Restore unto me the joy of thy salvation, and uphold me with thy free spirit. Then will I teach transgressors thy ways, and sinners shall be converted unto thee. Now David wrote Psalm 51 in deep repentance for his own terrible sin. Realising the enormity of his sin, and knowing the terror of the Lord, David resolved that if God forgave him, then he would strive to persuade others about the awful dangers of sin. Restore unto me the joy of thy salvation, then will I teach transgressors thy ways, and sinners shall be converted unto thee. Knowing therefore the terror of the Lord, we persuade men. And then Paul continues in verse 11 here, But we are made manifest unto God. But we are made manifest unto God. This is another way of saying that God sees everything that we do. Nothing can be hidden from him. We are made manifest unto God. Now Paul's integrity was being attacked by false teachers who had infiltrated the church. They were casting doubt on the purity of Paul's motives. He took comfort, however, that God knows all things. We are made manifest unto God. Paul's conscience was clear. Remember... Conscience is God-given. We should look after our consciences. We should cultivate them according to the word of God because consciences can be severely impaired and damaged. Acts 24, verse 16, Paul says, Herein do I exercise myself. To have always a conscience void of offence toward God and toward men. And so Paul was labouring to constantly have a clear conscience. We must prepare for the coming of Christ as judge in the knowledge that he sees every detail of our lives, including every secret act. God is watching us when we're on our own, when no one else is around. He's seeing us. He, of course, knows about our thought life. People can be very skillful at playing out a Christian character in front of others. But we are called to follow Christ. All the time. Even in the way we think. He knows. Our very thoughts. He knows what we utter under our breath. We have to prepare for the day of reckoning. By keeping our consciences clear. Before God. And by very carefully. Walking. And thinking about all that we do, is it in accordance with God's will? We are told uh, in Hebrews 4 and verse 12 that the word of God is a discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart. Neither is there any creature that is not manifest in his sight. For all things are naked and opened unto the eyes of him with whom we have to do. So, our inward motivations are known by God. And so, if we do something out of a motivation of pride, but we hide that motivation from others, so that they think we're just engaging in humble service, God sees the pride. And we're going to have to render an account to him. So Paul says here in verse 11, we are made manifest unto God. Everything about us, God sees. And he goes on in verse 11, and I trust also are made manifest in your consciences. As those to whom Paul ministers see the way he behaves, Uh, he, he hopes that they will know in their own consciences that he has preached the gospel to them with a genuine and sincere heart. And likewise it should be plain to us or to those who are observing us that even if they disagree with us, even if they strongly reject what we stand for, It should be plain to others who are watching us that we do really fear God and that we really do love him with all of our hearts. This is what is meant by others uh, being made manifest uh, by Paul and his helpers being made manifest in the consciences of those to whom He ministers. So he says in verse 11. And I trust also. Are made manifest. In your. Consciences. And so he's saying there. That as an apostle. I trust. That I and my fellow preachers. Are made manifest in your consciences. That you can see that we really are. Genuine. So whatever they think of us. No matter how much. They despise our message. At least may those who watch us realise in their own consciences that we are the real thing. We really are genuinely following Christ. And then Paul uh, says in verse 12, For we commend not ourselves again unto you, but give you occasion to glory on our behalf. Now Paul's character is being slandered by false teachers. He has just stated that his thoughts and deeds are manifest unto God and that the Corinthians know all about what he has done amongst them and about his motivation. Therefore he has nothing of which to be ashamed. Yet, Paul, by saying these things, is not engaging in self-commendation. He's not going to the Corinthians and saying, Oh, look what a wonderful, sincere man I am. We commend not ourselves again unto you. This is not self-praise, but Paul just wants to give the Corinthians the means to oppose the false teachers. That they might glory in having God's true apostle amongst them. To minister the truth to them. And so this is what Paul desires. We commend not ourselves again unto you, but give you occasion to glory on our behalf. Paul wants the Corinthians to have occasion to glory in the fact that an apostle has come into their midst and has preached God's truth to them. Let them glory in that. Let them glory in the fact that Paul is sent of God and is being faithful to God. And So this is what Paul is stating uh, in verse 12 here. Let the Corinthians boast glory in possessing apostolic truth. Uh, Likewise, we today must prepare for the day of judgment by adhering at all times to that same apostolic truth as revealed in the scriptures. We must be vigilant to oppose all fashionable, man-pleasing False teaching. So Paul says here in this 12th verse. We commend not ourselves again unto you. But give you occasion to glory on our behalf. Because we're declaring faithfully apostolic truth. That ye may have somewhat to answer them. Which glory in appearance. And not in heart. So Paul is saying there in the second half of verse 12. Uh, Let the Corinthians glory that they have God's chosen apostle amongst them. Let them honour his status as opposed to that of the false teachers. Uh, Paul's work speaks for itself. It was he and his helpers who, by God's grace, had founded the church at Corinth. They did so in the face of much Opposition. It was Paul whom God had used to bring these Corinthians to know the Saviour. So let the Corinthians uh, glory in that. And let this be the basis of the opposing the false teachers. Of uh, giving an answer to these false teachers who were teachers only in appearance, but not in their hearts. It was evident to the consciences of the believers at Corinth that Paul feared God and was not pursuing his own interests. This must be the starting point of their opposition to the false teachers in their midst. Because the false teachers are, as we read at the end of verse 12 here, glorying in appearance. They are relying upon the externals of religion. Uh, One of the things that they were insisting upon was the need to be circumcised. This is an example of glorying in appearance, adhering to externals. The false teachers are self-righteous. They do not love God from the heart. It is easy to masquerade as being a Christian by mere outward appearance, by religious activity and certain man-pleasing charitable works. But God looks for a heart-humbled before him. Outward religion often degenerates. Into conformity. To what society. Deems to be good. This has happened in the church today. The church is. Defining goodness. By what. The liberal secular establishment is saying. And so the church is saying ludicrous things like. Oh we must be inclusive. Inclusive. Now that, that that's an expression drawn straight from a Christ-rejecting world. And it's glorying in appearance. Oh well the world will like us if we talk about being inclusive. And of course, forced religion. Feeds a man's pride. If you do what society defines as good, people will look up to you. Remember how society looked up to the scribes and the Pharisees? What godly, holy men they were thought to be, but the Lord knew their heart. Oh, they meticulously tithed their income. They publicly gave money to charity. But the Lord knew their hearts. They gloried in appearance and not in heart. What if a man's unbelieving neighbours think well of him? That will not matter one jot on the day of judgment. And so Paul is saying here, look, we have to serve Christ from the heart. Forget external appearance, what people think of you. Forget about pleasing the Judaizers, those who want to return to the law of Moses. The externals. God looks at your heart. And then Paul says in verse 13 here, For whether we be beside ourselves, it is to God. Or whether we be sober, it is for your cause. Now this is very instructive because it tells us that many were suggesting that Paul was a madman. Uh, This is what is meant by being beside oneself. It means being out of one's mind, a fanatic, an extremist, And what do they call Bible-believing Christians today? They call us extremists, don't they? You are beside yourselves with your Bible-believing Christianity. This is always the charge levelled by those who oppose the truth. You're a fanatic. The early Methodists Uh, were called enthusiasts, which in the 18th century meant fanatics. And even professing Christians will accuse us of being fanatical extremists as we uphold the truth of God's word. You know, even our Lord's own friends thought at one point he was going too far in his public ministry. He spoke to great crowds, he opposed the religious leaders, and as he was given totally over to preaching the gospel, uh, he at times neglected his normal uh, meal occasions. Uh, He he simply forgot about his food and just got on with the work of preaching and ministry. And so in Mark 3.21... What did they say about him? And and these were the people near to him. They said, he is beside himself. He's a fanatic. He's a madman. He's an extremist. Well, Paul is saying here in verse 13, whether we be beside ourselves, well, even if we are extremists, as you allege, we're doing it to honour God. Or whether we be sober, if we be of a normal frame of mind, Whatever we are, whether we're extremists or normal people, we are acting to the glory of God. It is for your cause. Look, we are preaching this gospel for you, to benefit you. And so this is Paul's message to the Corinthians. We're preaching this message for your cause. If they call us extremists, We're serving God. We're not worried about what men think. All that we are keeping in mind is that we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ. We must endure the insults of the world for Christ's sake. Yes, they will call us extremists. But it's for the sake of the lost that we are extremists. It's so that men might be saved from their sins that we are extremists let them call us extremists as long as we can save a few we must all appear before the judgment seat of christ we must prepare for that day by making it our honorable aim to be accepted by god verse 9 we labor That we may be accepted of him. We must pursue a perfect holiness and obedience. We must fear him who is coming as judge. We must keep a pure conscience before the God who sees every deed. We're going to be judged according to exactly what we have done. Verse 10. Because we know that God's judgment is real. We persuade others. Verse 11. We must tell others that they. Also are going to have to stand before Christ. We must oppose false teaching. And glory. Only in apostolic truth. And we must serve Christ. From the heart. We must keep A clear conscience. Verse 11. We must serve Christ. Not just in external appearance. Verse 12. We must be prepared to endure the scorn. And mockery of men. They will say we are mad. But we preach the gospel. For their sakes. And so this is our calling to live out our lives in active, heartfelt service to Christ because we realise that we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ. We're going to have to give an account for everything that we have done, whether it be good or whether it be bad. We know the reality of judgment, therefore we persuade men. We have to preach the gospel because judgment is real. Knowing therefore the terror of the Lord, we persuade men. And may the Lord help each one of us to go out into the world and to persuade sinners to come to the Saviour. Amen.